Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this day and for this opportunity we have to gather in your name. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as we study your word this morning, and I pray that um, you give us strength to come to a right understanding of your word and to draw closer to you through this experience. I ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. Today we're going to talk about power. So when we think of this word power, not necessarily in the biblical sense, just in general, what kind of things come to our mind? Just anybody? What's that? Lots of energy. Energy, okay. What else? Electricity? Okay, so it's kind of a scientific definition. What else? Money? Okay. What's that? Horsepower? Ability to get things done. God? Okay. When we think about God, what aspects of his character do we think of in terms of power? Sovereignty, glory, okay. Nature, okay, that's a good one. So sovereignty, glory, nature. Okay. These are some basic pictures of what we think of when we talk about the word power. Okay, we have, like, we, you know, we talked about electricity, energy, the scientific definition of power. We have milita- military power, you know, mechanical power, political power, all these different kinds of power. Here okay, we have the power of God and creation. So now, okay, we're going to do a little exercise here. Take 10 seconds, talk to the person next to you, and you have to decide if power is good or evil. If you think it's somewhere in between, just pick one and go with it for now. But just take 10 seconds, talk to the person next to you, and decide. Okay, we come up with something? Who says good? Okay, good. Who says evil? Okay, you say evil. He's okay. He says both. That's pretty good. Okay, depends on how you want it. Okay, so I think most of us said. Okay, depends on who has it. Most of us said good. I think you know when we, if we're choosing between good and evil. But you know we have all this stuff. Power corrupts. Power does this. You know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is not what we think of when we think of power. Nobody, nobody mentioned this, anything like this. But yet we know that Christ is all-powerful, and we're told to imitate Christ, and we have the power of Christ in us. So if we want to find good power, which is a good and perfect gift from God, we need to try and define that maybe in terms that are a little bit different. What, what was a common tie with all these kinds of power? I think Mr. Przewski got pretty close to it. What do they all have in common? Ability to get things done. To make things happen, okay. They all have the ability to achieve a desired outcome through some kind of force. So if I have this big aircraft carrier, okay, I can sail around and force people to do what I need them to do, okay. If I have political power, I can force people to do what I need them to do, okay. If I have mechanic, some sort of mechanical power, okay, I can accomplish some task, that I need to get done. Okay, I can pull something, I can build something, I can do these things outside of myself. Okay. You could say that that's what's going on here, but that's not really what we see. Jesus is not forcing anybody to do something. He's not exercising sovereignty. So it's a little bit different kind of power. And we're called to be imitators of Christ. So that's what we're going to kind of discuss this morning, is what is this good power that we need to try and imitate? 
How many of you have seen something like this before? Seen something? This goes back to, I don't know, 600 BC with a lot of ancient philosophy guys like Plato, Aristotle. They came up with this thing and they discuss it all the time. This is just the basic conflict of interest between mind, reason, and body. Okay, each one wants something different. Okay, how do they relate? Which one is going to come out on top? Okay, they decided that maybe we could achieve some sort of virtue or good if reason and mind were over body, or maybe reason was over both of them. But in general, we just have this conflict of interest within one person. So it's not a bunch of different people having a conflict. It's one person and different natures of that person. Who says this is biblical? Who says this is unbiblical? This is... Nobody? Okay. (laughs) You don't think it's biblical? Okay. Well, we don't find this in the Bible, but we find something similar. Okay. We have new self, okay, Christ dwelling in me, which, you know, the spirit, the Holy Spirit in us. Then we have our old fleshly nature, our old self. Okay, these desires. Could somebody please look up and read Ephesians 4, 19 through 24? Ephesians 4. <laughs> this was a great passage. Ephesians 4. Okay. 24. Who being past feeling gave themselves up to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye did not so learn Christ. If so be that ye heard him and were taught in him, even as truth is in Jesus, that ye put away as concerning your former manner of life the old man that waxeth corrupt after the lusts of deceit, and that ye be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Okay, so we have the old man that's trying to drag us down, then we have Christ who's come into our life and is trying to draw us closer to God. So we have these two competing natures, which is similar to this, okay? This is, just, this is more conventional understanding, you know, philosophical about this conflict of interest. Okay, we see it in, a bi- in the biblical sense, okay? So this is truth. The, the other one, not really truth. This is how God portrays it in Scripture. But we still have this conflict of interest within a person. Psalm 73, 25 through 26 says, whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we have fallible, okay, can fail, and we have infallible, cannot fail. So we have these two natures within one person that are competing. So this is our basic problem. Now we have this conflict, okay. We're going to define it a little bit further here. Okay. So here, here's our basic worldview. Maybe, maybe this is just me, but I'm thinking I'm probably not the only one. Okay, here we go. Hello, my name is Wolfgang. I'm a Christian, conservative young man from Texas. Now, I'm fallen, redeemed by grace, but now that I'm redeemed by God and that he's living in my life, I'm called to be a warrior for Christ, defender of justice, protector, all these things, to fight for what is good, and to share the gospel with as many people as I can. See that guy over there? He, I, don't, I don't think he's a believer. He, he's a bad guy. See, I'm, I'm the good guy. I, th- I think he's the bad guy. 
just because, you know, he's, all these things that I'm trying to stand for, stand up for, the right things, he, he's against those. He's trying to tear those down. So I think my job is to engage him in some sort of holy war, some crusade, and we'll have a glorious battle until one of us is defeated. But we know that because God is on my side and I'm on God's side that I'm going to win eventually. So that's our basic conflict. So it's me versus him. Something like this. Okay. Over here, this is my cause. This is our castle. We're trying to defend this. So this could be family, the gospel, church, okay, the sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage, okay, your little sister, whatever it is you're, <laughs> you're trying to defend, okay? Then here's me. Okay, I got the, he's, he's got the walk, the stance, everything, this big sword, big shield with the red cross, okay? And then he's fighting off these enemies over here. Okay, these are the bad guys. This, this is trying to destroy this. So he stands in the middle, okay? And we know, we just look at the picture, you know he's going to win. He has to win. So there's this battle going on here. Okay. How, how, am I the only one who kind of thinks like, maybe not in these terms, but is everybody else kind of th- has thought along these lines? Okay. Okay, so I'm not the only one. Here's a more accurate and more biblical version of how the world is. I don't know about you, but I don't like this. This makes me uncomfortable. Because see, I I was over here. I got to be this guy. Now I'm this guy. Uh, You know, new man in Christ, okay. We still have the same cause that we're trying to defend. But now I'm I'm the evil fire-breathing dragon that's trying to destroy everything I once held dear. And I, I don't like this. I don't, I, something wrong with this. Could somebody look up and read Proverbs twenty five twenty eight? Okay, so we talked about power, different kinds of power, and we're looking for the power of God, the power that Jesus wants us to imitate. And I think this is it. Okay, we have this conflict between, I don't, I don't even see the old enemies we were talking about, these people out there that we think we need to fight against. I just see new man in Christ versus self, versus old self, my selfish nature. So now we have this war that's going on just within our own person okay that's deciding the fate of this of all the things that we're trying to stand for so i'm going to read a quote this is from my utmost for his highest by oswald chambers it is not being reconciled to the fact of sin that produces all the disasters in life you may talk about the nobility of human nature but there is something in human nature which will laugh in the face of every ideal you have If you refuse to agree with the fact that there is vice and self-seeking, instead of reconciling yourself to it, when it strikes your life, you will compromise with it and say it is of no use to battle against it. Have you made allowance for this hour and the power of darkness, or do you take a recognition of yourself that misses out sin? In your bodily relationships and friendships, do you reconcile yourself to the fact of sin? If not, you will be caught around the next corner, and you will compromise with it. 
If you reconcile yourself to the fact of sin, you will realize the danger at once. Somebody look up and read 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Thank you. Okay. So we have this struggle, okay, that's not according to the flesh, it's not anything we can see, okay, it's a spiritual struggle. And so let's, okay, this is when I get my way by doing things my way. So basically, I'm, go, I'm working and living according to the flesh, okay? And what I, what I think I want, what makes sense to me, you know, seems like a good idea. Oh, look, we have blue skies, green grass, everything's happy. Man who acts according to his own desires will propagate peace and harmony for God. Self-worldview 2528. (laughs) Okay, this is great. You know, if I just, you know, do what I need to do, take care of business, we'll just all be happy, right? Too bad self-worldview is not in the Bible. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So now we see that our, en- our greatest enemy is not that guy out there who we thought, okay, he's, he's the bad guy, I'm the good guy. You know, it's all on him. Now I'm my own worst enemy. And I don't like that. I, I don't like that personally. But let's look at some examples of how this works. Somebody look up and read 1 Kings 10, 23 to, through 25. 1 Kings 10, 23 through 25. Okay, so we have not only a world superpower at the time, but a nation blessed by God. God said, this is my chosen people, this is my nation. Okay, so they had it all. They had all the army, they had the money, they had the land, they had people, they had peace. So there was no conceivable way for somebody to bring this nation down. Okay, you can, no army could do it. Okay, God was with this nation. There was nothing that could happen to them according to our conventional definition of power. But then we look at this. This is just a few verses later in 1 Kings 11. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, among them the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So we go from the Christian nation superpower that nobody could touch with any kind of army. There was no 950 BC equivalent of the Roman Empire that could come and destroy them. Okay, they were invincible. But then we see that it took about a thousand people and they brought it down because this was not present. Okay, it was really only one man. Okay, one man could bring the entire thing down because of this. That's why this is important. That's why this is power. Okay, I don't, it doesn't matter how big your weapon is, whatever you think you're fighting with, if you can't operate it, you'll hurt yourself. Solomon had the greatest nation ever, okay, you could say that. This was the greatest nation on earth in history, but yet a few thousand people were able to turn it away. Let's look at some other examples of this. Okay, fear. What is fear? So the Holy Spirit says to us, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Okay. Flesh says to us, I am weak and there is no one to help. And we're talking about this conflict, okay, competing interests. If the Holy Spirit is in charge of our life, and that's what's ruling our decisions, then we have no reason to fear. It doesn't mean we're not going to be afraid, but fear, we will not succumb to fear. Because we say my strength is made perfect in God's weakness, or God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. If the Holy Spirit is not ruler of our lives, we're going to listen to this. And if we listen to I am weak and there is no one to help, we have every reason to fear. Okay, peer dependency. We don't. This is not in the Bible. I don't think these, these the word peer ever is used in Scripture. You know this concept is not directly addressed in scripture. This is when your actions, emotions, and thoughts are controlled by your desire for acceptance and approval. What is the key word here? Your desire. Okay. Listen to how this sounds. Mom, Dad, the reason I'm struggling with peer addiction is not because of me. It's because these friends at church or work or school or whatever, they're so smart and intellectually adept at controlling me that I have no choice but to do everything they say. And so that's just the way it is. I try and fight against it, but that's, that's why I'm struggling with peer addiction, not because of me. It's fact. You cannot blame peer dependency on your peer group. Peer addiction can take two forms. Usually, what's the form we typically associate with peer addiction or peer dependency? What does it look like? Outward appearance, okay. How, how does he act? How does a peer addicted person act? Okay, you want to be like everybody else. A clone, okay. So you're attracted to these people. You have to be with these people. Usually associated with the person who's always on his phone, always has to be wherever something's going on. And if he's not, if he's denied these things, he's unhappy. Peer addiction can also take another form. Can, can a peer... Peer-dependent person be lonely and quiet and have not have many many friends. Yeah. 
Okay, if you're motivated by this desire for acceptance and approval and you're not getting it, okay, now we have flesh saying, I want this, you know, I want acceptance, I want them to think about me this certain way. And we have Holy Spirit saying, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, reach out to others, disciple others. Okay, flesh gets control and says, I'm not getting what I want, you're going to suffer from this. If Holy Spirit says, you love unconditionally, you love your neighbor as yourself, then you do. You go. You don't struggle with this. Anger. We talked about this yesterday in the men's meeting. Okay, anger. So here's what happens. My personal justice system has been violated. Okay, we're going along, everything's fine. Now there's the crisis. Whatever happens, you know, I spill the coffee, somebody says something. So now we have this problem. I think Mr. Welch described it as now this buildup of energy. Okay, we have this energy, now what are we going to do with it? Flesh says, I have been wronged, I deserve to be angry. Okay, I'm the good guy. I wouldn't be angry unless there was a good reason, and now I'm angry, so obviously I'm in the right. What does the Holy Spirit say? Be angry and do not sin. So again, conflict of interest, which one is in charge of your life? Okay. If flesh is in charge of your life, you succumb to anger. If Holy Spirit is in charge of your life, doesn't mean you don't get angry, but you don't succumb to it. You allow God to work in your life in that way. Okay, a few clarifications before we go on. Okay, Pel no Pelagianism. Pelagius was a first, second century theologian who believed that there was no such thing as the fall. That He believed that Adam and Eve sinned, but then now we still have the choice to choose between right and wrong and that we can just draw closer to God that way. And that's how we attain salvation, which is not true. Man has been redeemed by God's grace alone from his sin. So I'm not saying if, you know, okay, now we have this fight. If I can just win and, you know, somehow defeat myself and my sinful nature, then I can attain salvation because you can't. It's by grace alone. Again, there's no intellectual solution for salvation. There's only Christ. So I can't think my way out of sin. I can't somehow come up with this new concept and say, okay, now if I do these certain things, then I can overcome my sin or redefine my sin somehow. And again, I say that probably 90% of the, f when you talk about fighting the good fight, is going to happen on the home front. It doesn't mean that it's all going to happen on the home front. We usually like to think that 100% is going to be out there, that, you know, I just go to church, be a good person, try and read my Bible, get closer to God, and then the war is going to be going on out there. Most of it's going to be going on in here, but that doesn't mean we all become pacifists and just sit in our corner and read our Bible and pray. We do have to confront others. We confront the culture around us. We have the Great Commission, go therefore, and we're told to confront sin in our lives and in the lives of others. Okay. Anybody have any questions at this point? Keep going. Okay. So we have a problem. We have a battle, that, a fight that we have to fight and somehow win. Okay. We redefine the fight from me versus them to new man, Christ in me, versus my old selfish nature, which is actually contrary to everything I believe in. So we have this conflict. How do we deal with it? Hopefully we've all come to the two obvious solutions that it's either solitude or asceticism. Either we go up in our little tower and just have somebody bring us food and that way we won't hurt anybody. 
we'll, just, we'll be safe up there, get away from the world. Or maybe, maybe if we beat ourselves, we can somehow subdue our nature, and then that way we'll, we'll you know, overcome this and we can get closer to God that way. Does, does this sound like a good idea? No? Okay. Okay. Suffering. Now, suffering, I don't mean asceticism, you know, beating ourselves. I'm talking about anything that causes us discomfort or pain, you know, emotionally or spiritually. Could be blame, could be responsibility we don't want, could be some injury to our personal image. And what, help me out here, what other kinds of things would we associate with suffering? Just feelings that we wouldn't want. Circumstances not going my way. Very good. Everybody else has what I want, but I can't get it. What else? Guilt. Guilt? Okay. So again, so all these things that are not necessarily wrong emotions—they're just negative things that we have to deal with. And we see two basic reasons in Scripture for why we're given these things. One is discipline. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. So we know that, okay, sometimes God will bring us through hard times to try and bring us closer to him. So he'll allow suffering in our life. He'll allow us to go through difficulties in order that we might become more like him. And the second reason is that we must suffer because Christ suffered. It's part of our calling. It's part of being a Christian. You know, we, live, we try and walk in Christ's footsteps. He suffered. You know, he was persecuted. So that's our calling is to also suffer and be persecuted. These are both involuntary. These are things God sends into our lives we don't have any choice about. That's the way it is. Okay, if, he's gonna dis- if he chooses to discipline us, okay, and we're called to suffer because Christ suffered. That's part of our calling. What about choosing suffering voluntarily because Christ did? This is a little bit different. Okay, some of Christ's suffering came from him trying to follow God, trying to tell others about the truth, and he was given suffering for that. But then some of his suffering, particularly his death on the cross, was voluntary. He chose. He gave up. This is Matthew sixteen twenty four through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I usually understood this verse to mean kind of one of the other two kinds of suffering, where, okay, if God calls us to give up something, to make some sort of sacrifice, then we need to understand that that's our calling and that Heaven is better than this, or than this life, so we're called to give it up. Okay, That's a good interpretation. But here's another one. Okay, we think about Christ and his conflict. Okay, Now, Christ is the knight in shining armor. He is the warrior for God. Okay, He did have enemies on this earth. Who do we usually, when we read scripture, we talk about Jesus, who are, who are the... Typical enemies that he was dealing with. Pharisees. Pharisees, okay. Sometimes it was a, you know, in the end it was a physical conflict, but in the beginning it was 
theological arguments. Sometimes he was spreading truth and they were spreading falsehood. But there was this general conflict. And we just talk about the Pharisees, but who, does, who are they really representative of? Satan, okay. All of us, okay. All of us. Okay, our fallen, because when we're born, we're not born as good little Christians, okay, we're going to do the right thing. And we're born fallen. We're born sinful, okay. And what is sin? Sin is going against God's commandments, okay. It's going against the kingdom of God. So we're born, naturally, on the side of the Pharisees, against God. Okay? So now we think about Christ. Okay, he had the power to call down legion of angels. Okay? Call down thunder, all these things. He could have said, it's me versus the Pharisees, me versus you know, humanity and their sin. Easiest solution, just wipe everybody out. Okay? We'll have another flood or something, just wipe everybody out. Okay, then that will be just. I will be fighting to protect my cause, which is, you know, my kingdom, my law, my word, and I will take out my enemies. But what did Christ do? What did he do? He came to save us. How did... He voluntarily... He died... What what, what was that? He died for his enemies. Okay. How did he die particularly? He was crucified. Crucifixion was the execution of that day. That was how you executed your enemies or somebody who had done something wrong. So now we have this conflict, Christ versus the Pharisees, Christ versus us, our sin. Okay. Instead of putting the execution on us where it belonged, he took it on himself. So now we read this verse again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we talk about this struggle, okay, this war that's going on. And if we want to win this war, according to Christ's principles, what must we do? Take up the cross. We voluntarily take on the suffering, okay, whatever it is, whether blame, guilt. We take these things on ourselves. We don't say... Good guy, bad guy, you know, he deserves it. Put it on him. We take it on ourselves. Okay. Deny myself. So, now, our new nature, okay, the Holy Spirit is calling us to be like Christ. Our old nature, our fleshly, selfish desire, doesn't want this. It doesn't want suffering. Okay, any way we can get rid of suffering, we do. We can we can pawn it off on somebody else. We can just you know brush it under the rug, whatever. So by so we win this. We have this conflict. We win the conflict by allowing the Holy Spirit to rule in our lives and accept suffering, accept what suffering we're given just as Christ did. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge that what we want is not always what you want. And we ask for strength and self-control to draw close to you through your word. 
through the power of your spirit. I thank you for these passages of scripture and the, the callings they place on us. I pray that we would follow each one of them, Father, and that we would fight the good fight and keep our eyes focused on you. Bless us as we go about our week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.